Something significant happens between Philippians chapter 1 verse 26 and Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. There's a connecting word or a couple of connecting words there that begin verse 27. Uh, it is a word that indicates that Paul is now turning to a, a new subject. He's actually transitioning here to a new topic. It's a new section of the book. In fact, when you get to verse 27, you've gotten to what I think may be the main section of the book of Philippians. I think it's here where we get our main idea for the book of Philippians. If you'll remember, we said in the beginning of our study of the book of Philippians that the main idea for this whole book was the unity for the progress of the gospel. He's writing to a church here, exhorting and encouraging that congregation toward unity for progressing, for advancing the gospel. In this main section of the book, Paul starts here with an ethical exhortation to the Philippians. Paul is clearly concerned in this section with something very important. He's concerned with the life of the Philippian Christians. How they're going to live and the witness that their life is going to give to the culture that's surrounding them. And the unity that that life is going to bring to the experience of that local congregation. Here's what Paul is doing in these verses today. He's calling on these Philippian believers... To live lives worthy of the gospel. To have behavior that is worthy of the gospel. To have unity as a congregation around the gospel. Around our gift of faith. And unity even in our suffering. So today, based on what Paul is telling the Philippians here, I want to help us to see that we as well need to be exhorted to live a life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. To live as a congregation, united around the gospel, united around our gift of faith, and yes, even united in our gift of suffering. And some of you are going, gift of suffering. Hold on, we'll get there and I'll be able to explain that to you. So today, the main idea, and this is probably one of the easiest sections in the book to figure out, what is the main idea here? Well, the main idea is living a life worthy of the gospel. Living life worthy of the gospel. If you make an outline, that's good. And if you don't, that's fine as well. But I always try to help you outline the text as we're going through. So here's what you're going to see in verses 27 and 28. How the believer lives the worthy life. How the believer lives the worthy life. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? Paul's going to walk us through some things here to help us understand How do I live worthy? Here's what you need to do. And in verses 29 through 30, we see the believer's gifts of faith and yes, even suffering. That faith in Christ and suffering for Christ are gifts given to us by God. So let's look at verses 27 and 28. We'll see how the believer is to live the worthy life. Paul is giving the Philippians, as I've already said, an exhortation in this passage here. It's an imperative, which means a command. And it's the first command, as we're reading through the book of Philippians, verse 27 is the first command. It's the first action that we are to take. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now, manner of life there equals uh, conduct or um, your conversation. Some of you have translations that say, maybe uh, conduct yourself. But he's saying, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now you'll notice at the beginning of the verse, we see those words there, only let. is a way of saying, whatever happens, if you wanted to replace it with those words, whatever happens, in other words, Paul is saying, whatever else may happen, 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, if you're like me and I'm reading that, go, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. I'm going, wow, that's a pretty high standard to live up to. Let my life be worthy of the gospel. You're asking me to conduct myself, to live my life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What exactly does that mean? First and foremost, I want to clear up something here. It's not suggesting that we ourselves become worthy of the gospel. It's not Jesus setting up the standard and and then we by our efforts and by our work become worthy and then we gain the benefit of the gospel. That's not what Paul is talking about. The gospel is good news that sinners can be reconciled to a holy God from whom their sin is separated. It's good news that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin and then He rose again that we might be justified with God. And when sinners hear that gospel and they repent and put their faith in Christ, they are born again by this good news. Sinners are transformed out of the kingdom of darkness and they're brought into the kingdom of God. And then we receive the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that that Holy Spirit is a down payment on our inheritance that one day we will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. In a manner worthy of the gospel... It's not that sinners do something or they try harder to secure something for themselves, but living in a manner worthy of the gospel tells us that it's because of something that's already been secured for us. We should live out of gratitude and appreciation for the gospel. I want to make sure everyone understands that. It's not what you and I do that puts us in a position to be worthy of the gospel, but because we've experienced God's redeeming grace, we respond with gratitude and live lives in appreciation for that. That's what Paul is saying here. The phrase there, let your manner of life be worthy. And as I've already said, some of your translations say, conduct yourselves. In this time period, in this ancient world here that some people refer to as the New Testament, that phrase, let your life be worthy, has the idea of conduct that is becoming of a faithful citizen. Life that is becoming of a faithful citizen. The Philippian believers were to conduct themselves as faithful citizens. That's what that phrase meant. If you were living this day and you heard that phrase, you knew, live as faithful citizens. The word that Paul uses here was often used in this time period, in this region, to exhort the Roman citizens to live up to the privileges and the responsibilities. And here's what we need to understand. Philippi was in a region that brought them under the Roman Empire. They were Roman citizens. And listen, if you lived in that day and you were a Roman citizen, you had extreme privileges. But listen, you also had some extreme responsibilities. So these people in Philippi are living under Roman rule. They have great privileges and great responsibilities. To these Philippians, they would have understood the implications. Paul says... Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live as citizens. And if I'm a Philippian, I'm going, well, I'm a Roman citizen. I know what that requires me to do. But Paul is saying something different here. He's saying live like kingdom citizens. Live like citizens of God's kingdom. You know what is expected of you as a Roman citizen. He says, take that and apply it to your Christian life and live your life as a citizen of God's kingdom. Behave as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
What does that mean for you and I here today? Who are believers? What does that mean for us? I think it's quite simple. We ought to live like blood-bought, grace-redeemed citizens of the kingdom of God. Do you realize what God has done for you in saving you? He has taken you out of a kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. As believers, someday we take that for granted. And Paul is exhorting us here, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. You've been granted citizenship... Listen carefully, and don't rush to misunderstand what I'm saying here. You and I have been granted citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Not in the kingdom of America, but in the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. We're all citizens of America here today, I think. Most of us are. But listen, if you're a believer, you have a citizenship that is on a higher plane than just being an American citizen. You are a citizen in the kingdom of God. As a result... You have an extraordinary privilege and extraordinary responsibilities. Christian, you have a higher citizenship, even the citizenship that you enjoy living in the United States of America. As Americans, we have great privileges, do we not? We have great responsibilities, do we not? But listen, we have even greater privileges and even greater responsibilities as people who are citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm grateful to be in America. I served in the military. I fought for this country. I wasn't in the war, but I was in conflict over in the Middle East. And I'm proud to have served this country. But I have come to realize that Jesus did not die to save a nation, but He died to save the nations. Jesus didn't die to save America. He died to save the nations. And for that reason, a Christian's loyalty lies more with his citizenship and the kingdom of God than it does with his earthly citizenship. Christian, you are first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's what Paul was telling these Philippians. You're under Roman rule and empire. Great privileges and great responsibilities. He says, take that thought and move it over to your responsibilities as a Christian and live as a citizen of the kingdom of God with that same mindset. We have the privilege of living in what is surely the most prosperous nation that has ever existed in time. And in November, you'll have the opportunity to exercise one of your important responsibilities when you go vote for the President of the United States. As Christians, we should be involved, don't misunderstand me, in the life of our country. We should be devoted to the general welfare of our community, of our state, and even our nation. But we must remember that as Christians, we are citizens first and foremost of the kingdom of God. And why is that so? Because... This kingdom is going to pass away one day. But the kingdom of God will endure forever. Paul says you live your lives in reflection to the kingdom of God. You're citizens here. Yes, you fulfill your responsibilities and your obligations. You be a good citizen of the United States. But as a believer, your priority is to be a faithful citizen of the kingdom of God. How do we know that? Well, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says our citizenship is where? In heaven. Here in this world, we are aliens. Wednesday night, we were going through uh, Psalm 119, and we're talking about us being sojourners and pilgrims in this world. We're just passing through. We're waiting for our time when we become full citizens of heaven. Paul says, you belong to a heavenly people. Live your life in a heavenly way. Now notice in verses 27 through 28, Paul says that whether he comes to the Philippians, and whether he sees them or he's absent, 
He wants to hear something. Do you hear what Paul said? Whether I come and see you or whether I don't, I still want to hear something. What is it that Paul wants to hear? He wants to hear about their conduct, how they're living worthy of the gospel. And what kind of conduct does he want to hear? Listen to what he says there. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. There it is. Live worthy of the gospel, and here's how you do that. You stand firm, you're united in spirit and mind, you're contending for the gospel, and you have courage in the face of persecution. That's how we live worthy of the gospel. Here's our formula for living worthy of the gospel. If we, Redbud Baptist Church, are going to live worthy of the gospel, it is necessary first that we stand firm in the face of opposition to the gospel. If we don't stand firm in opposition to the gospel, we have nothing to stand on. As a church, we must be persistent in our devotion to the gospel. Paul wants to hear that the Philippians, as well as you and I, are doing what? We're standing for the idea of standing firm is like uh, in the ancient times how military, the soldiers would line up and they would lock arms. You've seen those movies how those soldiers would come together with their spears and their shields, and those shields would lock together and they were standing firm. See, in Philippi, a majority of the citizens were Roman soldiers who had retired and moved into this region. So when they heard that, they knew, stand firm. How do we stand firm in the gospel? How do you and I stand firm in the gospel? Can I just give you some practical ways of doing that? Know the gospel and care about the gospel. That's how you stand firm. Christians today have things taught to them, even in church, on radio and TV, and even in the books they read, listen, that are not in agreement with the purity of the gospel. Amen? You watch TV. You listen to the radio. You go to your local bookstore. And when you go, please be careful. Because there are things in there that, that distort the gospel. They, they take the gospel completely out. And it's all about us and what we are and, and what we're to do in this life. Notice in verse 27, Paul's concern for unity. I, I told you how to stand firm from the gospel. Let me back up here. It's to know the gospel and care about the gospel. And you're thinking, well, I'm a believer. I know the gospel. Can I, can I tell you how you can know the gospel better? Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Why should I do that? We're referred to as sheep in the Bible. And some of you guys in here farming. I know you got goats. Does anybody have sheep? Those animals can be pretty what? They're not smart. <laughs> to be polite, they're dumb. Why do you think the shepherd had to constantly go along, prod them with that staff and reaching out with that hook and pulling them back? You and I must preach the gospel to ourselves every day because you know what? We can easily forget the gospel. We don't forget the concept of the gospel, but we forget something. We forget whose we are and who we belong to in this world. We, we forget to care about the gospel. You know, there, here's a way to do that. There's times when I'm praying during the day 
And I've been reading Scripture. I pray that Scripture back to God. And within that Scripture is the Gospel. And I pray that Gospel back to God. It's not that God doesn't know it. He knows it. But who better to pray the Gospel back to and give thanks for You know what that does for me? It puts a, a stirring in my heart, a caring of knowing the Gospel. It helps me stand firm in the Gospel. Notice in verse 27, Paul's concern for the unity. There must be Gospel unity in the local congregation. He says, standing firm with, excuse me, in one spirit and with one mind. This idea here is the attitude that should characterize us as a local church. We're to have one spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but it's a human spirit, an attitude, a mindset of we are going to stand firm on the gospel. We're not going to compromise the gospel. It's the attitude. You see the unity? We're to come together and have unity. The idea is that there is a determined effort among those in the church for the gospel. There's a common and a united purpose among the members of the congregation. Listen. I love meeting with the church. I love coming on Wednesday nights. And I love coming on Sunday mornings because I get to fellowship with God's people. That encourages me because I live life in a sinful world. I have to deal with all the stuff that goes in the world. And when I come to church on Sunday and I see other believers, I'm going, they're doing it too, but they're faithful to come. And we're going to worship together. You know what? That, that encourages me when I see you here. You know, that's why in Hebrews it says, forsaken not the assembling yourselves together. You know why? Because we encourage one another. We see one another. But the thing that holds us together is the gospel. We're to unite around that good news. Notice in verse 27, he says, striving for the faith of the gospel. Striving gives us the idea that effort is involved here. Striving has the idea of being engaged in a fight. Now, let me stop. You understand what I mean by fight, right? We're not putting up dukes. We're in a battle here for the gospel. Better yet, it has the idea of competing against someone else. Not those in the church, but together we're sacrificing self for the welfare of the gospel. Actually, that word striving there has the idea of wrestling. I said that word properly, didn't I? Where I come from in Georgia, it's wrestling. Wrestling. People give me a hard time because I don't pronounce it correctly. But we wrestle where I come from. It's not wrestling, it's wrestling. But it has the idea of engaging with someone and, 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 and striving together. When you brothers sitting here, I know, there's been times when y'all got in the sky and you grabbed a hold of one another and you held on. and you, That's what it's talking about. Not physically, but we're to unite around the gospel. We're to have the idea we're going to strive together for the gospel. Paul says, I want to see unity in the fire. I want to see harmony in the congregation because we're in this thing together. And it takes all of us, it takes all of us here in order for us to stand united against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Listen, you go out of here thinking you can face up to those three things by yourself and you'll be like a dog with his tail between his legs in a few days. It takes all of us working together, striving together for the gospel. Every person has the opportunity either to encourage the congregation with his, with his desires, his thinking, his conduct, one of his words, or he has the opportunity with those same things to break down that congregation. Notice in verse 27, Paul says, side by side. Paul wants us to understand that we need one another and that there is a required commitment to one another in the life of faith. 
And I know from a pastor's standpoint, it's easy to expect him to make a commitment to your life and the faith. But listen, the person to your right, you're just as committed to them pursuing the gospel and living out the gospel as anybody else. We're in this thing together. Paul wanted to hear that the Philippians were striving side by side. What, what does that look like? Practically, here's what that looks like. If someone comes to you, and I'm not saying someone has, but this happens. If someone comes to you and says, you know, I've really made a mistake. I've sinned. I know that I've made mistakes in life. And maybe that person has even caused you grief with their sin and their choices. Here's what Paul's telling us. You strive side by side with that person in their sin and in their making the mistakes. And here's what you say. Because of the gospel, I'm with you to this end. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to help you walk through this. Through this. That response is absolutely essential to the life of a Christian. Because we're not sinners. Because we are sinners. When we sin, listen, we don't need little forgiveness. But how much forgiveness do we need? We need big forgiveness. And we can't do it alone. We need one another. Does it make sense that we're striving side by side in this life as believers? We make mistakes and we, and we sin against God. But see, when the body comes along and we're striving side by side with one another and helping one another to walk through that and helping them understand the gospel, there it is, forgiveness for them, that is striving together. Striving side by side. In verse 28, Paul tells us that Christians should not only... Um, should not, excuse me, be intimidated by opposition. Look what he says there. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Because the church stands firm in the gospel, because of what they believe and who they profess, and because of their embracing of the gospel, in that time period, as well as our time period, people view us as being weird, do they not? Can I say, I don't think we're as viewed as weird as we, the church would have been at one time. I heard someone say, the church is so subnormal that if they became normal again, people would think we were abnormal. Paul is saying, don't be intimidated. Don't be surprised when you meet opposition to the gospel. Can I let you in on a secret? It's going to happen at some point in time. The world does not like the gospel. Satan does not like the gospel. Notice what Paul says in verse 28. This unity, this standing firm in one spirit, this contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Notice what it said. This is, this is great. I, I, when I read this, I'm thinking, absolutely. Not that I'm affirming God's word, but I'm affirming absolutely this is what God's word, this is what the gospel does for me. Notice what it says. This is a clear sign to them, your opponents, of their destruction, but of your salvation. In other words, when opponents oppose you because they oppose the gospel, you know what that is? That's a sign of their ultimate destruction. It's a sign of God's judgment. When people oppose us for the gospel, now listen, don't misunderstand me. We're not to take up arms and Put up our fists and fight people. We're to love them. To love them in the gospel. But when that happens, it's a clear sign of people's destruction when they oppose the gospel. It is also a sign of assurance. What does it say there? 
It's a sign of your salvation. Because you're doing what? You're clinging to the one hope that sinful men and women have. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. See? It's a sign of their destruction. Don't be fearful of your opponents because the opposition to the gospel means one thing. God's judgment. God will take care of those who oppose the gospel. You just be faithful to share the gospel, but notice also it's a sign of your salvation when you are standing firm in the gospel. It's assurance of your salvation. Paul is telling the Christians, live like citizens of God's kingdom. You do so by standing firm, striving together, and by not fearing the opposition. Now look with me at verses 27 and 28. We saw the the worthy life of the believer. Now we see the believer's gifts that come from God. In verse 29, Paul talks about these gifts from God. And I know you're sitting there going, you have a different translation than I do because I don't see the word gift nowhere in these verses. How do we come to the thought that there are gifts here in verse 29? Notice the word, let me read it here, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, notice whose sake it's for. It's for Jesus. You should not only believe in Him, but also suffer. Now, this will happen very rarely. I'm going to give you a Greek lesson, okay? Uh, don't check out on me. This is good. I promise you. That word granted is the Greek word charizomai. You hear that word charizo, which is the word charis, which is our English word Grace. The idea is to grant graciously, or better yet, it means grace gift. That's where the idea of gift comes from. Look what it says. For it has been given to you as a gift that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer. The first grace gift is that of faith, of believing in Jesus. Faith is God's gift to you as a believer. Yes, God has given you, the believer, the gift of faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. What is Paul saying there? That salvation, including our faith, is a gift to us from God. In the book of Acts, Luke is telling the story there of a woman named Lydia. She hears the preaching of the gospel. And notice what happens. The Lord opened her heart to believe. Lydia's faith, her belief was the result of God working in her heart. God was worked. He had to open her heart. He had to take away her blinded eyes in order for her to see her condition. In order for you to believe... You must hear the gospel and then God in His grace opens your eyes and breaks your hard heart in order for you to believe the gospel. Now, listen, you have a responsibility to do what when that happens? Repent and believe in Jesus. In Acts chapter 16, verse 31, the Philippian jailer wants to know how to become a Christian. You know the story. He runs into Paul there because he thinks all the prisoners are gone. And Paul tells him, don't take your life, we're still here. And the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And you know the response he's given? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What does he tell him that jailer? You have a responsibility to repent and put your faith in Christ. But yet, 
That is a gift that comes from God. All that is included in our salvation, including the grace and the faith, is from God. We're to trust that faith is a gift from God. Now notice the second gift. And what is it? For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. And you're going, wait a minute. I want to exercise what I do at Christmas. I want to return this gift. I'm going to re-gift this to somebody else. You're already thinking, how long is the line at Walmart to take this gift back and return it? We don't normally think of suffering as a gift, do we? Suffering, whether you realize it or not, is a privilege. Suffering is part of God's providence and plan for your life. It is a grace gift from God. Suffering is a grace gift from God. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Without suffering, listen, we would be poor reflectors of the image of Christ. One, one commentator I was reading this week says, Suffering is the friction which polishes our grace. Jesus' suffering brought forgiveness for others. Your suffering and my suffering is to be a demonstration for what? For the sake of Christ. We are to suffer like Jesus and for Jesus. Mark chapter 8. If you've never read this passage, just make your note to read Mark chapter 8, beginning around verse 31. But I'm going to read you verse 34. Here's Jesus, and He's talking to His disciples and the crowd that has gathered around. And listen to what He says. If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. Did Jesus say, hey, if you want to be happy and everything go well, get in line and follow Me? What did He say? If you're going to follow Me, you've got to deny yourself, you've got to take up your cross, and you've got to follow Me. When you told someone that day and time to take up his cross, that meant a big deal to those folks. And you and I think sometimes that these small things that we go through are taking up our cross. And they are. But the idea here is to deny yourself. To take up a cross means that you've passed the point where you will once again be able to pursue your own interests. To deny yourself and take up the cross is to come to the end of yourself. You no longer belong to yourself anymore, but you belong to Christ. And He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Me. Now, I know what I just said. For most of the stuff we don't see on TV, what I have just said does not get said on TV. Within the Christian world, there are people say this, if you really trust in Christ, you won't suffer God wants you to be blessed. God wants you to be happy all the time. How many of you in here are happy all the time? You should know right away that's a lie when people tell you that. He doesn't want you to have trials. He doesn't want you to endure suffering. He wants your whole life to be one great big blessing. Have you ever read that in the Bible? Absolutely not. If you're experiencing suffering, it's because you don't have enough faith. I heard that a lot in my life. You're suffering because you don't have enough faith. And as I said before, this idea is taught in books, we hear it on TV, we hear it taught even in churches. So Christians today are confused as to what they are to think about suffering. 
Suffering is a gift from God. So how do, what do we do with that thought? You should expect and prepare to suffer for the sake of Christ. That's simple. Prepare and expect. We need to be ready to identify Him in all our suffering. Casey Bernal. That name may ring a bell with some of you. Had no idea the morning she walked into Columbine High School that that was the day she was going to have an opportunity to bear witness to Christ with one word. She was asked the question, Are you a Christian? She said yes. She had no idea that morning she was setting out on a day in which she would become a martyr for Christ. She was ready to give witness when the time came. She was prepared to say yes. It wasn't a long speech. It wasn't a long sermon. Just yes. Now, I want to clarify something here. It, it may be true that not everyone here will face a direct threat on your life because of your confession of faith. Did everybody hear me say that? I'm clarifying this. That's not going to happen to everyone. So what about other suffering? What about other suffering? What about the suffering that doesn't result directly from persecution? What about just the regular sufferings of life? Physical suffering? What about those? I want to quote to you here. There's a couple of quotes that are relatively long, so listen carefully. Here's what John Piper has to say about that kind of suffering. In choosing to follow Christ in the way He directs, we choose all that this path includes under His sovereign providence. Thus, all suffering that comes in the path of obedience is suffering with Christ and for Christ. Whether it's cancer or conflict, all experiences of suffering in the path of Christian obedience, whether it is for persecution or sickness or accident, have this in common. They all threaten our faith in the goodness of God. Yes. And they tempt us to leave the path of obedience. Therefore, every triumph of faith and all perseverance and obedience are testimonies to the goodness of God and the preciousness of Jesus. Whether the enemy is sickness, Satan, sin... Or sabotage. What in the world is he saying? Let me clarify. It's when the job is lost and you're tempted to say, Lord, you've abandoned me. It's when you're tempted to lose your faith and go back on God, but you say, Lord, I'll honor you in this. I will make you large. I'll believe and trust in your promises that what's going on is your design, your plan for my life. It's when you stay in a difficult marriage and when you're facing impossible situations and you say, Lord, I'll do this for your glory. It's when you've gotten that bad health report and you say, instead of, Lord, you don't care about me, but rather you say, Lord, I want you to get glory from my life and from this situation. I want this to be a witness to my children, to my grandchildren, to my family, and to my co-workers of the greatest and the goodness of God. That's the way we're to look at those things. In what sense could it be said of myself and you here today that we follow Christ? In what sense could it be said of Redbud Baptist Church that our manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ? The Holy Spirit, who is the one who inspires the writers 
of the Bible. The Holy Spirit of God, through the Apostle Paul, calls us to live lives worthy of the Gospel. To live like citizens of heaven. To live in accordance with the Gospel of Christ. To live a life that does something. To live a life that promotes the Gospel. How do we do that? We live lives worthy of the Gospel. Listen to me, church. By living in unity. We do so in the company of other believers. In the company of other believers... You contend for the gospel and you also suffer together for the gospel. To walk worthy of the gospel means that we, Red Blood Baptist Church, we stand firm, united in our attitude and our minds for the gospel. It means that we strive together against sin and against our enemy, the devil. It means that we play as a team to advance the gospel. How many of y'all in here wanted to be on a team but weren't really good at sports or just didn't care about it, but you'd like to be on a team anyway? You're on a team sitting here today. The greatest all-star team that's ever been comprised or put together to advance the gospel in a dark world. I don't know about you. I sort of like the idea of being on that, being on that team. It's better than any MVP award you'll ever get. Serving on a team to advance the gospel. Walking worthy of the gospel means that we recognize that our faith in Jesus is a gift from God. God has granted us the gift of salvation, that He's also given us the gift of suffering. And in that, we should look to see how we make Jesus large in our lives and exalting Him. Let's pray.